Hello and welcome to the field guys. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good afternoon, Steve. Good afternoon, Bill. <laughs> what we're going to do today is walk through a stream. <laughs> <laughs> we just found some uh, seriously deep puddles buried under the snow. Yeah, I wonder if they could hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the idea of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out into the field and share with you everything that we've learned. And today, oh, we gotta stop. <laughs> and I wanna say, Happy New Year, Steve. Oh, Happy New Year. <laughs> Bill and I have not seen each other in a very long time. I actually think the last time we saw each other was when we recorded the last episode. Oh my God, that was so long ago now. <laughs> the autumn episode. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so that's Holy before God. Thanksgiving. It's been a couple months. Yeah, well, so, good to see you. Good to see you too. <laughs> Good holidays? Yeah, everything yeah, yeah. was good. Uh, I have a new nephew, so that was exciting. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Nice. No, oh, I... and another one on the way. Really? Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> wow. An uncle twice over. Good for yeah, you. yeah. <laughs> You're going to be the cool uncle. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the great hope, but I don't know. <laughs> All right, well, the last time we did record in November, I, uh, I actually had a gift for you, and I forgot to bring it. Yeah. So this could count as, uh, as a Christmas gift, Okay. I guess. So it's actually something I picked up in Iceland. Whoa. So first, there's a pamphlet to go with it, and you need to describe this to people. Oh, gosh. Okay. It's the Icelandic uh, Phallological, right? Phallological? That's right. Uh, museum, a unique collection, the only one of its kind in the world. And then describe the logo there. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So, Phallological. Okay, I get it. <laughs> um, so the logo... It kind of. I'm. I'm assuming maybe it's some type of misshapen it's rose or something. But how do I say what it looks like? I, I mean, I. Uh, it looks like a penis. It looks like yeah, <laughs> just we like can a say that. balls. <laughs> I don't know if we can say that. <laughs> so this was in Iceland. This is the penis museum. Oh my god. And it's all very scientific. They oh, have over second. 400 examples, 400 specimens. Right? <laughs> so I'm looking on the back and they have, so instead of like a wall-mounted deer head, they have wall-mounted phalluses. That's right. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it was quite an experience. Yeah. Uh, my wife and daughter enjoyed it immensely. Uh, oh but, God. But that's not all. So I did get you um, a tin of mints from the Phalological <laughs> Museum. Thank you so much. <laughs> they, they may be phallus shaped, I'm not sure. Well, I will say that they are still good until um, May? M-E-I of 2021. <laughs> That's so. Icelandic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. <laughs> you shouldn't have. No, seriously. <laughs> so folks, if you do make it to Iceland sometime, check out the uh, Phalological Museum in Reykjavik. Uh, yeah. Well worth it. I've never been to a museum like that before. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and I did say that, you know, the displays are, are chiefly very scientific, but once you get into the gift shop, their sense of humor really uh, comes out. Nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with that being said, I, I did have to start this episode with a warning. We probably should have done it before that. Mm. For anybody listening with kids out there, this episode does... <laughs> a little late, <laughs> I know. honestly. Yeah. I am late. <laughs> but if you haven't turned it off yet, we will delve further into subjects that acknowledge sex and sex between animals. Maybe not human so much, but a little bit. Non-human so. animals, but... Uh... This is true, non-human okay. animals. Thank you for that. All right, so this episode came out of the last episode we did, the, the autumn episode. Yeah. Because in that, we talked about diapause, and we touched on delayed implantation. 
And after I finished that episode, I just happened to start do some reading on that because it interests me. And mm-hmm. it actually just developed into this episode because I figured, even though you said you were going to do a December episode, that that probably wouldn't. <laughs> and this is what makes us such good co-hosts is that you know when I can't deliver. <laughs> but it's not like you can make up for it for me. You know? I'm all right so, with that. so we missed it. Yeah. I'm all right with that. Yeah, and I apologize. So, uh, actually, can I speak on that just very briefly? Oh, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, so this is honestly just going to be an excuse, I guess. (laughs) When we first started the field guides, the reason that we decided to do it, at least on my side, was that I was in a master's program that I hated, (laughs) and I knew I just wanted to, you know, get my credit hours, you know, get the grades and and everything, and then get out of there, um, and then hopefully find a job somewhere but then I ended up going back to school. (laughs) And now I find myself in another lab as a PhD student and I love the work I'm doing and it's, I'm so busy all the time that I keep having these great hopes of getting my button gear (laughs) and doing the research on an episode. But it's like every time I sit down and I'm like, you get sucked into Facebook. No, 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 no. Every time I sit down and I'm like, I'm going to research a topic for the field guides. I'm like, Oh, but there is that paper I could be reading right now. And, uh, (laughs) and it's tough because especially when you're in a master's or a PhD, it kind of comes home with you. Sure. And it's not like you clock out for the day and... and, and It's not a regular job. Yeah, and you can actually never do too much. <laughs> the only thing you could do is not enough. It's <laughs> and like teaching. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah. It's, you, you, can, you can prepare forever, and, you, and you're, ne- you're never going to have enough. So. But I can, I can back you up on this because, folks, there's been at least two times since we recorded the last episode that we invited you out we're over for a gathering. Matt, uh, our friend Matt from Indefensive Plants and, and Sarah, mm-hmm. they came into town. Yeah. First time in a year, and they came over, and Steve was a no show. And where so, was I? What was I doing? I don't know. You said you couldn't do it. You, you just said you had stuff going on. You might have been, I don't know, out of town or something. But. I was. I, I was in D.C. <laughs> and then and then this whole last week I was out of town because I was presenting at a conference in San Diego. <laughs> so it's... It, it, but you did. Everything's been so busy. I've been out of town so much in, recently. But, but you did miss the Christmas bird count because you overslept. That one was <laughs> totally on me. <laughs> that was 100% on me. Yeah. That's that was our... awful. I actually, I felt really bad about missing that. Cause, uh, and guys, if uh, I know it's too late for this year, but if you haven't done the Christmas bird count or maybe you haven't heard of it even from the podcast or anything, definitely try to look into it for next year because I don't want to miss it again. It's, it's definitely <laughs> one of the highlights of my year. It's just a lot of fun to drive around during the winter, look for birds. Yeah. National Audubon Society, they do run Christmas counts the two weeks before and after Christmas each year. All birding levels are welcome, whether you're experienced or not. It's just a great way to spend a winter day doing something to help birds. Oh, and that being said, and I, I think you guys figured this out on your own, but I have no idea what Bill's going to talk about. <laughs> That's right. Uh, from from the sounds of it, it sounds like something about delayed implantation, yeah, maybe yeah. something about, I'm guessing, black bears or something. I don't. Very that's good. my guess. Yeah. Wow. You read okay. my mind. Well, I mean, the, the, that episode, we talked about <laughs> black bears and delayed implantation. I don't know other animals that do that. But before we get into it, I, I will say one more thing. I think we can't make excuses anymore for being late. Yeah. And folks, if you're a regular listener... You just got to accept that the new normal for the field guides is we will get out episodes as often as we can. Yeah, right. and, and anyone who's supporting us, in fact, we've gotten many new supporters since this yeah, little hiatus, thanks. this unplanned hiatus that, that we took. 
we have more than we've ever had before. And, and we've, we've lost a few people along the way and we totally understand, yeah. but we want to thank everyone who's supporting us and we're going to do our, the best we can to keep putting out a quality product yeah. for you guys. Quality and, uh, product and as often as we possibly can. And that's part of it is that there's so much research goes into each episode that it's so hard to be like, all right, time to do the episode. <laughs> right. It takes so much preparation time and, and, uh, it's, it's really, uh, exhausting mentally but but we love doing it it's it's we really do. the best thing so and thank you folks that that have stuck with us so yeah thanks for being patient all right okay so as i said in the last episode we talked a little bit about delayed implantation and it piqued my interest so just to talk about delayed implantation if, if you didn't listen to that last episode for example you've heard of the long-tailed weasel steve right isn't it called something else oh no oh, no, no 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 you're it, thinking of the short tail weasel is also called the ermine. That's what, okay, That's but right. it's just a type of weasel, long-tailed right. weasel. I do like you, the weasels. Do you know why it's called an ermine? No, I don't know that name. Because no one's gonna buy a weasel coat. <laughs> that's so funny. I don't know if that's true or not. But yeah. That's what I was taught. Yeah, I also... Uh, it's all marketing. So, un- uh, unless unless I'm just completely wrong about this, my joke is gonna totally not work at all, but for years now, I've been calling skunks shit weasels. <laughs> <laughs> right, they're weasels, right? Am I wrong about they that? Are. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they are weasels. Fr- from now on, everyone, <laughs> we will lovingly <laughs> talk about skunks as <laughs> weasels. Nice. All right, now we've Did lost we have to bleep all, all that out? <laughs> we've lost all the parents. No. <laughs> I was actually I was at a, a fundraising dinner a few weeks ago. Yeah. And um, for our friends at Earth Spirit. Okay. And someone came up to me and said, you know, you're Bill Michaelick from the Field Guides, right? And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening. And we, you know, we talked a little bit. And she said, oh my son. He's nine years old. We listen to all the episodes together. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, really? <laughs> there's, there's some stuff in there that's not appropriate. <laughs> I mean, but in terms of the language, we don't need to do it, but we do bleep things out when we have to. And then, no, but we do talk about, like, we make some crude jokes from time we to do, time. We yeah. do, But, yeah. hey, I, I applaud her for, you know, <laughs> diving in. Yeah, right? yeah. I don't think we're so bad. We're not like shock jocks or anything. I don't think so. Not no, yet. no, I don't think so. <laughs> all right, so the long tail weasel. After mating, implantation of the fertilized egg. Wait, what does this thing look like? Long-tailed weasel? I'm just trying to picture it. So, so it's just like the, the ermine. It's just slightly larger. I'm going to get the size Yeah, wrong. but I'm saying, what about a listener that doesn't know what an ermine looks uh, like? That's true. Okay. <laughs> so think of a very slender-bodied uh, brown weasel. <laughs> <laughs> like a fairy. You know, with their weasel-like, for sure. <laughs> like a fairy. And uh, their tail. <laughs> a fairy Long, I would it. say. <laughs> Usually brown. The ermine's the one that changes color to white in the winter time. Yeah. Um, but as far as I know, the long tail weasel does not. Mm-hmm. All right. Just shut up now, so I can. How finish. much like minks do they look like? They're small. Okay. All right. Back to what I was trying to say about the long tail weasel. Okay. So after mating, the implantation of the fertilized egg is delayed for seven to nine months. Holy cow! I mean, that's a long time. And gestation lasts an additional nine and a half months. I have a question. Yeah. I, I don't know if you looked into this, but can it happen sooner or is it an obligate waiting period? Yeah, Does I it don't have know. to wait? No. I'm not sure. Okay. And the female little brown bat, Myotis lucifugus, Ooh. after mating, it stores the sperm to be used later. So instead of fertilization within a few days, mm-hmm. uh, it occurs months later. Hmm. So in today's episode, what I'm going to do is we're going to look at these type of delays. They're collectively known as reproductive delays. Okay. And why do they occur? I mean, why do you think they might occur? Huh. It's so weird to like disengage the act of mating with implantation. So 
obviously has it has to have something to do with resource allocation or so I, I don't know like i'm trying to think why why would you not want to give birth near the time oh wait a second <laughs> maybe it's because you want to give birth when you become because obviously it takes a while for the development right, right? um and, and you probably want them to be born maybe in the most fruitful season so maybe they they delay it so when they're actually born it's in a very productive time of the year right so typically you're going to want to give your young the maximum amount of time possible to grow get healthy before the winter sets in again okay right so let's say if you if, if you're you, dealing with winter like if you made it in let's say june or something i don't know i'm just making it up yeah. you probably wouldn't want the young to be born until maybe like let's say in this area like the following spring or something just so there's plenty of food to go around or whatever right or, and that, honestly, that, that's my guess that's just my that's what i'm wondering there's not a clear answer to that okay because it's going to be different for the different species that do this. And, and what they rely on. Right. Yeah. You, you can group some together, obviously. Right. But there's still a lot of questions about it as well. And I think that's why it's a, a topic that's fruitful for us to look at. Yeah. Like, for example, I only have questions. <laughs> I know nothing about this. <laughs> so today we're going to cover the basics of reproductive delays in mammals. Okay. And then we're going to look specifically at bears. And I, I picked that because right now, today is January 19th. Yeah. We are at the most probable point that black bears here in the Northeast, but really continent-wide, are having young. Oh, right, so, because they have the young, the, the, the female bears have young while they're still hibernating, right? Yes, the male bears don't have any. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what? I told you I didn't know anything about this, so. <laughs> All right, so, so we're gonna look specifically at bears, like I said, but not only at the reproductive delays, but also just some fascinating points about their reproductive cycle. I learned a lot that I didn't know about them. Hmm. All right. Now, like wanna... what position do they like? Or... <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I, before you go on, I'm just kind of noticing how nice it is around us. Why don't we talk to people about yeah. Yeah, where we are? So we are at the Hampton Brook Wildlife Management Area. This is a New York State managed piece of forest. Um, it's relatively new. We've, we've actually been here once before. Yeah. But we have, as in most places we go to around here, second growth forest, mm -hmm. uh, about half an hour southeast of Buffalo. And what we're seeing around us, it's mostly uh, second growth hardwood. So we've got a lot of maple, yep. uh, a lot of beech. There are some hemlocks mixed in here. Yep. And actually some pretty good sized hemlocks, but you could tell they're definitely being outcompeted in a few cases. Oh, yeah. Some of the maples over there definitely are growing taller than the one anyway. And we should say that we are in the midst of really our first big lake effect snowstorm of this winter, wouldn't you say? It's been disturbingly warm this winter yeah. and disturbingly snowless. So what is it now? It's, it's just about the 20th of January yeah. and we really haven't had any snow in Any Buffalo. significant snow. Yeah, yeah. We had some snow early on, but it, it went away and it was gone for it a long time. It all went away very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, we've definitely had more days without snow than with. Yeah, when I was uh, right before heading out to San Diego, I was like, oh, it's going to be so nice not having to wear a hoodie. The day before I left, I was in a hoodie in Buffalo because it was like 50 degrees. Yeah. And, yeah it w I was like, what's going on? It's a why, little alarming. Why, why is Buffalo yeah. so warm right now? But we actually changed our recording site. Uh, because the roads were so bad oh, yeah. that uh, I didn't want a chance driving out to Franklin Gulf where you wanted to go. Yeah, it's so, not the worst weather in the world, but it's like the first snow, and that's always a problem. Yeah, yeah. but it is beautiful. I'm glad we picked this day to record. Yeah, and it's that snow that sticks really good, so yeah. all the trees just have one whole side that's just loaded with snow. Yeah. It's kind of cool. 
Like we, you look to one side of us and you only see white and then you look in the exact opposite direction. Trunks. It's just trunks without <laughs> snow. Uh, but if we went on the other side of those trees, it would all be white again. We could yeah. see the uh, predominant wind direction. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we actually were going to record this morning. It's uh, mid-afternoon right now, but this morning I called Steve and I'm like, why don't we hold off? Because there were uh, 20 mile an hour winds gusting to 50. Oh, yeah. Uh, little... And now it's, uh, I don't think we're picking up any wind on the mic. It, yeah, it seems not. pretty nice right now. Yeah, we're in the woods and, and that's giving us a decent amount of protection. Yeah. All right, so let's get into it. The paper I'm going to look at first, it's from 2014, and it was just titled Reproductive Delays in Mammals, and this was in Biological Reviews. So I figure a good spot to begin is what exactly is a reproductive delay? And these can be classified as any pause in reproduction that occurs at one of three times. It can happen between mating and fertilization. So that's what we talked about with a bat a moment ago. It saves the sperm before fertilization happens. Right. So that can be called delayed fertilization. It can also be something called cryptic female choice, which we'll talk about a little later on. So just kind of put a pin in that. Oh. Female choice that you really can't see it's going on. I have, a, I have a guess about that. What do you think it is? Well, this is what I was going to guess because I saw some, I don't know, Discovery Channel specials or BBC specials or something where like a female can be mated with and then they can actually like eject, like get rid of the sperm. You're, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then another, and then maybe a more favorable mate could come. And she's it's like, crazy. Eh, I'm more into this one. <laughs> crazy. So we'll get into that more. Yeah. The second time these delays can happen is between fertilization and implantation. And that's what we talked about with the weasel. The okay. egg does meet the sperm, mm -hmm. but it doesn't get implanted into the uterus right away. Right. And that's usually called delayed implantation. But then you can also have it take place after an embryo has implanted. So you could have delayed development. Oh, okay. Right? So, so all three stages that we've talked about so far can have these checkpoints that they stop at. Right. And all the, the animals that we talk about could have reproductive delays mm -hmm. at one of these times, at two of these times, or at all of these times. Yeah. It really depends on the species. And then I would say the most important one that we haven't talked about, and it's actually the most... Um, it's the most effective is actually just celibacy in general. That's right. That's right. It's worth the wait. Yeah. I was actually thinking of calling the episode that. It's worth the wait. All right. So I do want to point out again, though, that we are focusing on mammals here. Uh, that's really going to be the bulk of this. This is just such a huge topic. Sure. It just made sense to focus on oh, this. I was so hoping you were going to go into Hamamalis virginiana. What's, uh, trees? Yeah. No. Okay. Uh, the witch hazel. Why? Remember, it has the delayed development. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Listen yeah. to our witch hazel episode, guys. There you go. I think it's a good one. We already covered that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So I see the bias, though. So. <laughs> the first documentation of this type of delay in mammals, it was in roe deer in 1843. Oh, roe deer. Where are those? As far as I know, they're in Europe. Okay. I didn't look. So. No, I don't know anything about deer, but it sounded so familiar that it was either in a study I read or I don't know. But I never saw one in person. So these guys, they do delay implantation for four to five months after fertilization. Hmm. We now know of over 130 mammal species that exhibit some type of delay. And uh, I'm asking you questions like you're an encyclopedia and it doesn't make any sense. I was about to say, and how many mammal species are there? Like, is this, does this, or does this make up like a, a small percentage or a large percentage? Like, I just want to know how rare or how common this is. I would say. Like, what's 140? I, I don't know how many I'm mammals. I'm going to give species. you some context. Sure. All yeah. right. So there's 27 mammalian orders. Okay. All right. Only nine are known to exhibit reproductive delays. Okay. All right. So, and then within those nine orders, obviously not all of the members are going to have delays. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the names of those orders. Yeah. And you're going to try and see if you can figure out what they are. Perfect. Mammal yeah. orders. Yes. The thing that I've spent so much time working <laughs> on. The first one is. Okay. The Diptrotodontia. Oh, crap. Get out of here. You know that um, no, tell me. Marsupial mammals. Crap. <laughs> hey. I feel like I, I definitely had heard that before, but okay, let's go. The Desuromorphia. Nope. That's the carnivorous marsupials. Oh, okay. It, I, which I had to look that up. Do you know yeah. what one of the car carnivorous marsupials is? No. The Tasmanian devil. Oh, no way. Okay. Right. And then you have the Eulipotophyta. Nope. Uh, those are moles, shrews, and hedgehogs. Nice. And I think the best fact that I came across in researching this episode is the Eulipotophyta. That means truly fat and blind. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> then there's the Cingulata. Those are the New World placental mammals, like the armadillos. You've already given up quizzing me. <laughs> yeah, I have. All right, here's, here's a tough one. Ready? Yeah. Carnivora. Oh boy, yeah. Um, aren't, wouldn't that include, does it include both uh, like canines and felines? Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Rodentia. Oh, rodents, yeah. yeah. Oh, I know Chiroptera. There you go. That's okay. one. Bats. Yeah, bats, yeah. Lagomorpha. I know you know oh, that. Oh, uh, rabbits and yeah. hares and stuff. And pikas. Yeah. Oh, pikas. Ooh, uh, do you know what I just watched? Oh, I'm thinking of puka. Um, do you know the movie I'm talking about? No. It's this old movie. This guy walks around. Uh, it's called Harvey. It's from like 1950. Oh, yeah, with Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, yeah, with Jimmy Stewart. He's yeah. got this invisible friend, the Puka, right. who's a rabbit. The rabbit. Yeah, okay. You watched it? Yeah. Good I, for you. Well, because it's one of Lynn's favorite movies from when she was a kid. Right. And then uh, we watched half of it a long time ago. Then I had a lot of time to kill on a flight. So I decided, I was like, oh, I'm only 57 minutes into this thing. I got to finish this movie. Uh, you want to see a good old movie? Yeah. Watch Witness for the Prosecution. Witness for the Prosecution. Excellent. It's based on Agatha Christie. Okay. It takes a little while to get going, but the last 15 minutes yeah. blows you away. Wow, okay. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. I, I'm kind of a sucker for those type of movies. Like any Audrey Hepburn movie, oh, I just yeah, get sucked yeah. into. I think it's that weird made-up accent that actors had back in the day. You know, <laughs> that weird Hollywood accent. The continental accent. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I just, something about it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right so I guess back to the <laughs> podcast. So, there's one more. This is the Cetartiodactyla, which are the even-toed ungulates. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. All right. So those are the nine mammalian orders that exhibit some type of reproductive God, I think I scored like a 40% on that. Yeah. So, Or maybe less. I don't know. So we should say that the distribution of delays among these groups, it is complex. For example, delays in marsupials, they're believed to have evolved from a single origin, mm -hmm. whereas with bats, it appears to have multiple origins for all three types of delays. Hmm. Okay, so we're talking about delayed fertilization, implantation, and then development. They all evolved independently among bats. I was about to ask if, if these three systems are related to each other, or does implantation is that totally separate in all groups right. from uh i think it depends okay. on groups got it got it okay uh, when we talk about carnivora delays might have been the ancestral state that it was lost in recent species oh okay right. yep okay so let's talk about carnivora because that is the best studied got it so out of all the species 68 of them have delayed implantation 123 don't mm-hmm and then there's 71 species left. And those 71 species, they just haven't been studied. Yeah. To look, do they have delayed implantation or other kinds of reproductive delays? Right, so they're kind of a, uh, an unknown. 
Right, but yeah. they're a good group to study this paper set mm -hmm. because of the both the absence and the presence of delays within this group. Okay, so yeah. It makes them a good group to look at. But we should mention that reproductive delays are not just something mammals do. So other animals and even plants are known to have periods of reproductive diapause okay. between fertilization and their offspring emerging. So, and whether that could be sprouting, hatching, or birth, depending on what kind of animal you are. Should we say what diapause is? We're gonna talk about it, oh, hang okay. on. Yeah. So folks think of seeds going dormant, that could be a, a type of reproductive diapause. Okay. Fe female insects storing sperm, or birds laying eggs at different times, but mm -hmm. then those eggs hatch at the same time. A lot of invertebrates do it too. They yeah. kind of dry up into a, a weird, That's like diapause-like diapause. state. Yeah. Now, I'm glad you mentioned that, because in the last episode, we, we kind of talked about this. I defined diapause as a period of suspended development in an insect, other invertebrate, or mammal embryo, especially during unfavorable environmental conditions. So that's what you just mentioned. Oh, well, you know what I just mentioned? It didn't have to do with development, though. Right. Oh, okay. So there's diapause, and then there's reproductive diapause. Okay, got it, got and, it. And that's the point I wanted to make. Here we're focusing on mammal embryo development. Yeah. And some further research that I looked at, it's a diapause. It's a mechanism used to survive unfavorable environmental conditions. Right. Like temperature extremes or drought, mm -hmm. right? Reduced food availability. Yep. It's most often observed in the life stages of... Like Daphnia, little aquatic insects. invertebrates. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking... Um, or arthropods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially was, insects. Yeah, like when you have these like seasonal pools, sometimes uh, you'll have a bunch of these invertebrates completely alive and, and surviving, but they're totally in a suspended animation right. state until... That, that little divot in the ground fills up with water. They re, you know, they reactivate. Is, like that what, is that what the technical term? Reactivate. reactivate. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like hibernation. Isn't yeah, it? well, it's almost uh, <laughs> very similar. Gonna, uh, so embryonic diapause occurs in over 130 species of mammals. Right? Okay. Possibly. Now, how many mammals are there? <laughs> Stop. I don't know. And it kept coming across. They kept saying possibly even in humans, but. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and all of these references, when you try to click on the reference, yeah. it just kind of leads to these uh, research dead ends where there's just mm. like a mention in this paper that's then mentioned in another paper. But I really couldn't find hmm. any concrete evidence beyond these anecdotal kind of things. Happening. Right. And it also can happen in, in certain fish species. So we should say that reproductive delays... I would, I'm sorry. I would love to have some type of like official... You know, obviously the records would be anonymous, but it would be really, really cool to see like a pregnancy, like, you know, like pregnancy time distribution to see like what's the shortest time that uh, people have, what's sure. the longest time and what's the average. Because obviously the average is what, it's like 40 weeks or something. Yeah. And then, um, or something like that, 40, 41, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, it'd be interesting if some people have gone much beyond that and right. had healthy babies. I, I would like to see the healthy birth, you know, sure. so, so not like a, a premature birth or something, but where the child was totally finely developed and all that. Um, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so just yeah. to see, I don't know, because maybe that would be some evidence if, if, if it was further along, like, yeah. oh, the baby was perfectly normal, but it took um, 15 weeks or something, you know, <laughs> or sorry, or a few weeks extra, you know. Right, right. Yeah. 50 weeks instead of 40, whatever, yeah. And then we're like, oh, it was de it was delayed, <laughs> delayed implantation <laughs> by 10 weeks. <laughs> now, these type of delays, they are less common in viviparous animals. Vivi oh, interesting. So sharks are viviparous, aren't they? 
So the young develop... What are viviparous? People I might th- not know. I, so I think vivipary is when the young kind of develop inside the parent. Live birth. Yeah, it's live birth. Because I know that the, <laughs> I think the baby sharks just swim out of the, the mother shark. So vivus means living yeah. and paris means giving birth or bearing. Wait a okay. second. Am I thinking of a different term? Do sharks have something special about theirs that is different than what humans do? So there are some oviparous mm. animals like snakes. These are the animals that lay eggs where the hatching takes place internally. Oh, got it. Maybe that's what I'm thinking for sharks. Yeah. So we're going to have to I don't make know. an episode note on this. Right, right. Yeah. It would be interesting to know because, like I said, guys, I'm not prepared. Uh, I am, I'm only I'm going to get something right by mistake or look <laughs> stupid. So those right. are the only two options for me. Yeah. So let's just... <laughs> call it we're just exchanging uh ignorance here yeah yeah and oh i should on. say look ignorant i don't like using stupid I, I think it's a bad word all right but why do we care why do delays matter uh, let's think past the obvious point that um, delaying fertilization implantation these are going to alter the timing of subsequent events obviously like birth but what's more interesting is since these delays lengthen mm-hmm. the period over which reproduction occurs it's possible that they're a vehicle for sexual selection. So tell us in 20 words or less, what is sexual selection? So it's just where there's certain traits that may not be, they might not give you like a competitive advantage outside of the fact that a mate is more likely to want to have offspring with you. Right, so I'm thinking of these birds like peacocks. Yeah. With the the cocks have these crazy feather displays. It's not really gonna help them survive and get food it, but it's going to help them get a mate in fact that one might be an example of runaway selection right because uh, you would imagine that uh, with these these really showy peacocks they'd probably be at a disadvantage in terms of being pretty easy prey right <laughs> so these delays they could be a, a vehicle for sexual selection and especially specifically post copulatory sexual selection oh that makes so much sense though they're like the the dad just books it (laughs) well (laughs) no thanks or if the dad sticks around you know uh or whatever it's supposed to do depending on the species then it's like yeah i'll I'll, I'll implant this (laughs) you know or not (laughs) yeah (laughs) so when we look at the delays under this lens delays can allow sperm competition and female manipulation of fertilization. And that's what we talked about, cryptic female choice, Hmm. where females can actually choose whether to implant certain sperm or not. Interesting. It's almost like the the wildlife version of the morning after pill. (laughs) You realize you made a horrible mistake. (laughs) You're like, nope, not going to (laughs) happen. So a good example of this is delayed implantation. It increases the time frame during which sperm and ejaculates from various males might interact. So that's sperm competition, right? Mm-hmm. Or when females could manipulate and select sperm. During delayed implantation, there could be processes that select among zygotes, allowing some to implant and others to be rejected. Whoa. I mean, it's really crazy when you think about it. Yeah. So these delays, they give us an ideal opportunity to ask you know, some specific questions about female versus male control of sexual selection. because. I just think that kind of the traditional view is when it comes to sexual female choice. No, well, female choice. So female choice is typically what you think of when you think of sexual selection. Because the males are putting on the show, right? Yeah. I think of it like in birds and and even with, uh, well, I was about to say with mammals, but when you think about like a lion, like a pride or whatever, is that what they're called? Yeah. Where there's like one male and just a ton of females. So that's not 
female choice, is it? Or did the group of females decide <laughs> it was the strongest? I don't know. I, I, I always thought it was the males fought, fought among each other and then the winner of that or something. I don't, was honestly, I just have this romantic view of what happens with lions. Like, I'm just thinking there's the Lion King, right? Right. <laughs> and I he's think. the strongest one or whatever. But uh, well, I would say for, for most people, especially in North America, their, their knowledge of wildlife comes directly from Disney movies. Right, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. So as, as we were saying, fertilization may be mostly where male competitive strategies dominate, right? Because they're competing. It is female choice. Sure. But there's a lot of male competition going on. Well, yeah, because you haven't fit, the, you haven't, you haven't hit the finish line, I guess, in terms of um, passing on your genes to the next generation. Right. Just by copulation, you gotta get a little bit past that. And then delayed development can provide a chance for females to then further manipulate events. Mm. Now we mentioned cryptic female choice. Cryptic just means you can't see it. It's gonna be yeah. going on internally. So some well-known cryptids <laughs> might, might be like Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> what are those little rod things that fly around caves? They don't exist, but if, uh, no, you never heard of these rods? No. no. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I remember I was watching a cryptid show and they were talking about it. The uh, A dire wolf or something might be another cryptid. Well, setting that <laughs> aside, <laughs> I did see the best uh, advice on, on a hiking page on Facebook the other day. It said, Bigfoot leaves no trace and so should you. <laughs> nice. thought <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the last thing I'll say about this paper is the researchers said, we believe that reproductive delays are an underappreciated source of natural variation in reproductive physiology, and the investigation of these could allow important insights into cryptic female choice or sperm competition. So, mm. more research needed there. And if we could genetically engineer humans to be able to do this, that'd be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> you can. Afterwards, you're sitting there, and you're looking at her, and she's staring off, and you're thinking, what are you doing? She's doing cryptic female choice. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, afterwards, you're like, so uh, I'm going to vote for so-and-so. <laughs> and they're like, whoa. <laughs> 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 I'm cryptically not choosing you. <laughs> All right. Before we totally go off the rails. Wait, I, I have something important to ask. What? So obviously when we talk about these things, we generally try to be careful about what's being controlled and what's not being controlled. Obviously, the female's not going like, well, gotta get rid of this one. Or, like, what's happening? Like, we don't know. Obviously, these are non-human animals. We, we can't know what's going on in their minds. Obviously, they don't think using words like us. And, uh, <laughs> but even, even if it was a phenomenon that happened in humans, I think we'd have a really hard time understanding how this decision how ends up happens. happens. Yeah. And I did not look into the actual physiology Oh, I don't think, I'd be surprised if anyone even has like a good guess as to what, what causes the, this, yeah, I don't this know. choice to happen. Yeah. Uh, I, I was wondering if you had any, anything extra. Not, no, yeah. so I'm going to write that down as another thing we need to add yeah. to our list. Now, as I was saying, before we totally go off the rails, yeah. I think this would be a good time to talk about our episode sponsor, Gumleaf USA. Yes, good thinking. I'm actually, I'm actually thinking maybe we should find a place, so, maybe get a little bit closer to a tree where the, it's like to block the wind or something. Sure, so, so let's walk a little bit. Yeah. And uh, we can talk about Gunleaf. We'll try to get out of the, the wind that's cropped up here. Okay, cool. So if you're a regular listener, you know Gumleaf is a, a longtime supporter of the field guides. Oh yeah. So this company offers Wellington style natural rubber boots for men and women. They're perfect for birding, herping, for hunting, for farm work or just standing on the sidelines of the soccer field. And I can say over the past year, I've used my boots to wade through a freezing cold creek during a January thaw, to search vernal pools for salamanders and amphibian eggs, and most importantly, to protect myself from ticks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I do have to say that since I've gotten my boots, 
I have not found a single tick on myself. But anecdotally, though, <laughs> I know, just a, no, no. Anecdotally, though, didn't you say that maybe Linda or Violet was out with you and they had ticks or something, but you didn't? Yeah. I thought you were telling me one time, but and I was like, oh, this is a perfect <laughs> anecdote <laughs> that even though it's untrustworthy, uh, it would be nice to bring up. But no, no, I, yeah, it'd be good to throw in there. Yeah, right, right. If it were true, so I'm gonna say, yeah, that yeah, is true. <laughs> <laughs> so Gumleaf does have a factory in Europe where they've been making these rubber boots for over 80 years. They're really well designed with the features found in boots that cost twice as much. They're made from 85% natural rubber and that's why they can flex over 1 million times without a crack. Competitive brands typically use a higher mix of plastic and synthetics with their rubber so it's likely that if you buy a pair of less expensive boots you'd probably have to replace them well before your Gumleaf boots wear out. So with their neoprene cushion liner and Vibram sole you have comfort, durability and quality. That's the hallmark of Gumleaf USA boots. Nice. I'm also thinking that they're missing their opportunity for, uh, you know, they could slap a few things on there like non-GMO, <laughs> organic, vegan, gluten-free, you, you know. <laughs> I don't know if any of those are true, they're but. Gluten-free boots. <laughs> gluten-free boots. <laughs> What's the website, Steve? It's gumleafusa.com. And we will put, there's a special offer code that we don't remember right now. Nope. Where Gumleaf USA will give free shipping. We'll put that in the episode notes. Yeah, it'll just be a simple little link in the notes. It is free shipping to Patreon supporters, I believe. Yes. So, let's move behind these trees over here. Yep. Before we get into the next study, I just want to talk about hibernation a little bit mm -hmm. because it's at this point where I'm going to leave behind talking about reproductive delays, generally speaking, Yeah. and get into black bears. Okay. So. I'm gonna give a shout out to our hibernation episode, our high bear nation episode. That was, that was like episode three or four, right? Yeah, it was early on. Yeah. So I know when I was being trained in natural history, I was told that bears are not true hibernators. Okay, yeah. Not like a woodchuck, uh, jumping mice around here, some right. of our bats. Because everything fits into a nice category <laughs> and that's the one you know you have to be careful with. But when we were taught, the bear was really lumped with what were termed the deep sleepers, mm -hmm. the skunk, and the raccoon, those animals that sleep for extended periods but still will wake up and feed. It's just that their, their body processes don't don't drop as, as severely as all the other ones and th they can wake up more easily, right? Right, but don't you agree that it's wrong to put bear bears with those because raccoons and skunks still eat, they still yeah. defecate, whereas right. bears do go into a hibernation type state. Right, so even though bears don't have that drop in physiological processes as much as other true hibernators, yeah. they're still kind of like in that true hibernation state where you can like slap a bear around, don't do this guys, <laughs> you can slap a bear around and it won't wake up, you know? like it, Well, they'll it, get up a lot quicker than say a woodchuck. But I still think it takes like, doesn't it still take like 12 hours they, or something? Like? They can be groggy, Okay. yes, but there have been instances, and I'll get into, uh, I have some good links to recommend to people for when researchers thought bears were out and they were not. Oh no. Yeah. Cause you always see, I don't want to say you always, but you see those shows on TV where, you know, some guy goes in with a camera, he's with right. a crew, they're checking on the pups or whatever you call baby bears. And, and they're, you know, the, the, the mom's asleep and then they put them back and then they, you know, they're on their way. Right. Uh, I think they tag them or something, then they, they move on. But that would be horrifying if a groggy mom bear just, you know, popped up. My point with all that is, yeah. 
hibernation in bears is not as simple as... <laughs> like literally everything. <laughs> right. Makes it out to be. Yeah, right. right? right. So go listen to that episode. Yeah. I'm not going to get delve into a lot of the specifics of hibernation here, but a sure. lot of what I'm going to be talking about happens during that hibernation period, quote-unquote mm-hmm. hibernation period. So the first study I looked at, this was in 2011. So let's see if you know these terms. Mm-hmm. This looked at American black bear estrus and parturition in the Allegheny Mountains of Virginia. So, Steve, can you mansplain what estrus is? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, Does it have anything to do with estrus? It's mating time. Really? So That's like, estrus? When a dog comes into heat, they're an estrus. Okay, okay, so I just took a scientific writing course. <laughs> and they they begged us not to use words like that. Really? <laughs> like, if there's a simpler word to get your point across, they sure. say go for that. Right. <laughs> but don't, don't, don't make it inaccurate, but uh, stick with one term that's easy, that everyone knows, and stick with that. <laughs> I hate asterisks. So what is parturition? P- parturition. I did not know. I had to look I, this up. I, I have no idea. It's Par- birth. Oh, that's okay. all it is. Parturition. I don't even know what the root. Parturition. Roots, I don't know what the root words for those are. But if you look into studies on delayed implantation, mm-hmm. and, and parturition comes up a lot. It's just they're weird pet words that they like. So yeah. When you hear when I use that word parturition, folks, because I'm going to be looking in my notes here, just yeah. know it's birth. All right. This paper started off by talking about how researching reproduction in a lot of animals. It's relatively simple for species that reproduce frequently and have offspring that are easy to observe. Mm-hmm. But American black bears don't meet this criteria, right? So what's the Latin name for Ursus Americanus? Oh, I just gave <laughs> I mean, I knew it, but <laughs> Ursus Americanus, yeah. So did you know that some people are trying to get the, the black bear, the scientific name, renamed as Ursus America? No. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it doesn't follow the right rules anymore. <laughs> Ursus ends in the U.S. It can't be, it can't, the, the specific epithet can't end in an A. This is serious business, Bill. It's the most patriotic bear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ursus America. <laughs> so, Ursus America. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they have relatively slow reproductive rates. And they really, they have to be studied for multiple years or even decades to draw valid inferences. Mm-hmm. And to make matters worse, these guys, as you just mentioned, they give birth in secluded dens, and that prevents long-distance observation. Yeah, they're not a model species, let's yeah. just say that. And if entered, it can involve considerable risk. Yeah. Folks, look up. Uh, just type into Google, we thought this bear was out cold. We were mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good article. And then you can also look up Outdoor Hub, colon, Grizzly Attacks Bear Researchers. Mm-hmm. So those are two good links. We'll put those in the, the notes. And, and I think you have you have a blog. I haven't had asterisks in a year. <laughs> it's a really sad entry. <laughs> All right. Did you know that most bear studies, those have been carried out on bears in captivity? No, I had no idea. Yeah. So there's not a lot of information about reproduction in free-ranging bears. Mm-hmm. But this study, which started in oh, the... Oh, free-range. Yeah, I can get yeah. behind that. <laughs> <laughs> this study, Sorry, guys, I'm going to be one big distraction this whole episode. <laughs> this was called the Cooperative Allegheny Bear Study. This went on for 10 years. It was co- conducted in two study areas in Western Virginia. Not West Virginia, but mm-hmm. Western Virginia. And it started in 1994. It started out as a five-year study. So these were in the Allegheny Mountains. Now, I had to look this up. The Allegheny Mountains are actually along that western edge of... Virginia. Mm-hmm. They're part of the Appalachian Mountains. Okay. Now near us we have Allegheny State Park. That's actually named for the Allegheny Plateau. 
Okay. All right. So the Allegheny Mountains, uh, that section of the Appalachians that are down near Virginia, as they rise up, then they top out into the Allegheny Plateau, which extends to the southern tier of New York State, south of where we live. Okay. All right. So the object objectives of this study was to look at two relatively unexplored areas of black bear reproductive ecology. The timing of and possible influences on estrus and parturition of American black bears. Ugh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so in front of the study, they caught bears in snares and in traps. Now sedate the bears. They used dart pistols, blowpipes, or a jab stick. <laughs> so I think in all three cases, you have to get so close. I, well, besides the dart pistol, but still. No, but even the pistol. I mean, Would you like to be the guy with the jab stick, though? <laughs> <laughs> They always gave that to the, you know, the newest uh, research assistant. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, everybody does it this way. <laughs> so, uh, they the weirdest hazing ever, yeah. <laughs> they aged the bears. I didn't, I guess I, I kind of had an idea about this, but did you, do you know about... I just assumed the teeth or something. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Cementum annuli analysis. Oh, nope. Never heard of it. <laughs> never heard that term nope. ever in my life. But, but I assume it's the teeth thing. That, yeah, okay, they look yeah. at the teeth and... and the rings in the teeth okay that, that ages the bears yeah uh, and then they also used radio collars and these guys were thorough they also did hard mast surveys so what's mast for people that don't know what you know. Are, are you talking about like the fruiting acorns blooms yeah, okay like yeah. not stuff like that oh so what it's a hard fruit yes because acorns are hard <laughs> okay so every year they examined selected trees and quantified the mean number of acorns per 10 limbs on a tree and they used this index to uh, look at the annual autumn hard mast availability. These guys were thorough. I've never heard of this before. I, like, I wonder, I guarantee it's a normal thing because this isn't what I work in. Right. But I've never heard that. That's so specific. That's cool though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're going to look at their results. Now, this is something I did not know and I felt like, why don't I know this? Mm -hmm. Do you know when bear mating season is? Man. I don't. I didn't. I knew they gave birth during hibernation. How big of a range is it? Do you know? What do you mean? Like, when do they mate? Oh, like, like how many a, months? A, yeah, like a long period of time that they mate? About three months. Oh, so what? We have like a one in a four chance of getting it right? <laughs> there you go. Let's just say <laughs> May to July. You're right! <laughs> yes. <laughs> Females begin coming into estrus in late May. It peaks in early July. So think around the 4th of July, bears are like, woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> America! America! <laughs> They're shooting off fireworks. That's right. Estrus every day. And then it gradually declines through August. Yeah. The birth dates, they hypothesized, the researchers, that variation would probably result from maternal age, litter size, or nutritional stress if there was hard mast failure. Now, Another reason the study's so great, to, to get the timing of... Hard mass failure. <laughs> All right. Just... <laughs> this is what Steve's thinking about. <laughs> That's when estrus doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, the timing of estrus, they based this on, listen to this. Yeah. 326 bears and 430 observations of those bears. So, okay. pretty good data set. Oh, but these bears aren't in the wild? No, these bears are in the wild. So they're taking... How do they know that they're in, uh, doing estrus? <laughs> So they're looking for indicators of estrus on bears, female bear that were trapped. So this includes they're trapped. vulval swelling, vascularization, and discharge. Okay. So also what the newest research assistants had to do. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's what the first years are doing. That's yeah. right. So they estimated birth dates 
for 383 cubs from 150 litters. Hmm. In the bears in the study, they ranged from three years old to 24 years old. Average lifespan for a black bear, again, didn't know this, 18 years. I was about to say, I have no idea. I was going to guess 10 years. That was going to be my guess. 18, I, don't, I don't know. The record in the wild is 39 years. Whoa. Uh, in captivity, it was 44. Uh, man or woman bear. <laughs> I, I think know. that's the wrong term to use. <laughs> we don't talk about man and women, uh, men and women, uh, animals. So this is one point. I love that they put this in the study. They observed one anomalous birth date from a 24-year-old bear whose single cub was estimated to have been born on February 18th. Now, that mm. was much later than, than the average. Right. Because both the age class of this bear, five years older than any other female, and the associated litter's birth date, 14 days later than any other litter, were severe outliers in the data set. They excluded them from the calculations. Hmm. So I just love that they made that point. So you said February 12th, that was late? Yeah, so I'm going to tell you. So the, for the remaining 149 litters, yeah. the estimated birth date ranged from December 26th mm-hmm. to February 4th with a mean of January 17th. So today is the 19th. That's yeah. why I said, right. like right now is when a lot of baby black bears are being born. I was thinking about that. And you know what? That's the type of fact, like that's the little factoid I like the most because yeah. it's so nice to know all the mysterious hidden things that are happening okay. around you. Like what's happening right now? What is this animal doing at so this moment? In this study, 91% of the births occurred in January. Okay. Yeah. And the peak was from mid to mid late January. Mm-hmm. So what caused this variation? That's what they were trying to find out. Yeah. So they analyzed, there was a mast failure in 97, virtually no nuts. Right. And they figured, okay, that's going to affect cubs that were born in the winter of 98. Mm -hmm. They actually found there was little effect on birth date when compared with all other non-mast failure years. Hmm. Now that just, they're talking about birth date, not how the cubs did. Right. Okay. Right. So you'd figure. Because for all we know, they're underweight. They're, you know, and I'm sure that would have a, a big effect on their survival. But the crazy, set, the, the crazy part is they also found no effect on litter size. You That's know, interesting. Okay. One to two cubs versus three to four cubs. Right. And they even looked at two or three-way interactions among factors and mm-hmm. found no effect. So that one year of mast failure didn't have, hmm. it didn't seem to have much of an effect at all. Yeah. They did find that younger females had later birth dates. Not sure why, than older bear. All right, so a big question here is why is bear breeding season in early summer so remember we said it started in late may Mm -hmm. peaks in early july yeah so why does it happen then timing of estrus did not differ between the two study areas and the patterns that they looked at the patterns that they saw they have been documented in previous studies that took place in pennsylvania northern mexico tennessee idaho montana ontario and even in alaska so they're basically saying we can be pretty sure that these breeding season peaks are happening really throughout the black bear's con- nearly continental range. Okay. Okay. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, considering it's not the same everywhere. Right. Yeah. They did say photo period, so the length of daylight that's often related to breeding season timing for a lot of mammals, and this appears to be true for black bears as well. They're solar so. powered. That's what it is. <laughs> no, they can just see what's going on. Right? There's more daylight. So a study from 2007 proposed that the breeding season for bears, it evolved in response to seasonal food limitations that actually were from back in the Pliocene and Pleistocene glaciations, and they're just persisting today. Oh, so they're thinking it might be like a remnant right. evolution? Right. And, and okay, interesting. So and what would be the driver back then? Like, what were you thinking? I didn't thinking? get into that. No? I okay. <laughs> I didn't look at that paper. Because I was wondering if they were thinking it was selection or, or, or what. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. 
especially for species that don't have the largest populations. And I'm thinking maybe bears, they're so big. I, I don't know how huge their populations are. Often right. you don't really get a, a high level of stuff. selection in, in, in small populations like that. So, And there was yeah. a paper in 87 that suggested that black bear breeding season occurs in summer because there's constraints on either end. Mm -hmm. So in spring, you have den emergence. So you have these bears coming out some have cubs some are not but mm -hmm. they're kind of not in a good place to be worrying about reproduction at that time and mating they got to load load back up right right yeah and then in the fall on the other end of the summertime they got to worry about autumn hyperphagia no hyperphagia that's when you just gorge yourself <laughs> right so yeah getting i do i just do hyperphagia whatever so <laughs> <laughs> no you're looking pretty good oh thank you <laughs> so uh there was a Finally, a paper in 1990 that proposed mate competition theory, because they're saying males need to be in optimal condition for mates, and that's going to happen when high-quality resources are easily available. Hmm. And in early summer, it sounds kind of sad, but that's when you have a peak in neonatal ungulate prey. Oh. Fawns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And other ungulate babies, yeah. Have you ever found a, a fawn before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, nice Just times. people who like, it happens. How can you forget, right? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean, uh, uh, I found a dead one one time. Oh. <laughs> at Zor Valley. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've ever I mean, found I, a dead one. I definitely, I see him. I think it was dead. I don't know. It was, like, out cold, and I, for all I know, it was either sleeping very soundly or, or, or was just gone. <laughs> and then you took it home and made boots out of it. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's the only responsible thing to do. I couldn't let him go to waste. <laughs> All right. We're joking. <laughs> uh, and, and, and don't go looking for fawns to make boots. No. <laughs> so these theories, all of these theories, they're not mutually exclusive. And really a combination of factors may play a role. But we, mm -hmm. just, we just don't know. Coward. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then they got into the discussion of, of the timing of birth date. And, you know, I mentioned that younger bears seem to give birth an average of 12 days later than older bears. But they're really not sure about why this is happening. Do you know what's funny? As human beings, it is sort of weird to think about a whole species that everyone basically has the same birthday. <laughs> Every member of your species essentially has the same birthday, right? Isn't that sort of weird? That is weird. <laughs> when you think of humans and it's like roughly distributed throughout the year. <laughs> right. But most wild animals, if you think about it. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess it, Especially if, around here. But I, yeah. I also assume that if uh, if humans were less advanced than we are today, maybe there w it would be more... Uh, there would be more of a peak in certain uh, times of the year yeah. so maybe it'll happen yeah hey yeah i mean we might, we might go back to those those uh, those dark days <laughs> so i i just want to say again here folks we've got to point out that bears they're the only mammals with delayed implantation gestation birth and lactation that all takes place during hibernation when they don't eat drink urinate or defecate in any meaningful way mm -hmm. for several months and oh they, only survive solely on their stored energy reserves. Bill says in any significant way, because I think it's like a teaspoon of urine right. or something. <laughs> During hibernation. Yeah, which doesn't even seem worth saying it's in the first like place. just like what leaks out. Yeah, right. Those of you that are over 40 know what I'm talking about <laughs> when you're sleeping. But also, uh, I do want to say the one interesting thing that I am going to give a little bit of a spoiler for from the bear hibernation episode that we did is that I think the vast majority of the resources that are stored up for bears are used during the periods of time that they actually wake up from hibernation right. during during the winter. Yep. So the time that they're just knocked out, uh, sorry, the time that they're sleeping, 
<laughs> the t- so the time that they're out, they're not using almost any of their resources, and that's really just for when they wake up and there's nothing to eat. Right. And then they, they'll go back into hibernation. And-, and just one more shout out to that hibernation episode. Like, I was just blown away by hmm. the beautiful complexity of hibernation. It's not just like most people think where they go to sleep for six months and they wake up and just go about their business. It's There's crazy stuff going on. Yeah. All right, so let me give you a couple statements. Tell me if these make sense. Okay. All right, I'm going to give you a couple questions at this point. If environmental conditions are good in the fall, yeah. do you think bears would then delay hibernation? If things were good, do you think that they'd say, all right, I'm going to stay up, eat a little more food, keep going? Man, I almost feel like they would, but they wouldn't push it very much. I think there's probably some wiggle room, but they wouldn't push it too much. That would be my guess because a lot of plants are pretty seasonal. So I have to imagine that the plants are just going to keep producing because they, I think that there's a lot of plants that go based on photo period rather than. uh, Yeah, but birds migrate regardless of. uh, Yeah. yeah. So So, yeah, it's such a hard question to answer. So (laughs) I'll say final answer and then tell me why I'm wrong or or whatever. Well, I'm not going to give you an answer just yet. No. Okay. So what do you think? Are they going to stay awake? Well, that's what I said. I I said, I think they might stay awake for a little bit longer, but I don't think that that would extend indefinitely. Like this, this pretty warm season that we had, even though it was a little bit nicer, I don't think that pushed them too much further than they would have otherwise. That, That would be my guess. My second question is during hibernation, do you think a bear in good condition would give birth earlier? during hibernation or later during hibernation shoot i I don't know later if anything i don't maybe i don't know earlier (laughs) it's hard right it's so hard yeah i mean because you might think earlier because you're you're thinking all right well then they're going to give their young more time but the babies don't hibernate right no they just they suckle they that's what i mean so i don't think earlier gives a huge advantage because obviously suckling is going to make the mom go through resources more quickly yeah but it'll give the cubs a chance to get bigger yeah, but if it's significantly earlier than they would have otherwise, I still feel like they're pretty helpless other than suckling. So I, for some reason, my intuition tells me that you wouldn't birth the babies earlier, unless you never know. Maybe this is what I don't know. On average, could the, let's say when the mother normally comes out of the, the, the hibernation area, the cave, whatever, with the, with the babies, could she have hypothetically kept feeding them on her own for a few more weeks a month whatever i don't know that i don't know so so if if that is the case that they could have they could have kept going but now that it's nice enough out they can go out and just forage but they just they choose to forage over cycling because that's just the smarter thing to do at that point if that's the case then yeah maybe they could start earlier i don't know all right well we're gonna get into it (laughs) so that's me rambling uh, (laughs) and not being able to to answer a question clearly (laughs) so in 2014 there was a study that looked at factors affecting date of implantation, mm-hmm. parturition, that's birth. <laughs> Thank you. And den in entry estimated from activity and body temperature. Now I should have to, should say that this is in brown bears. Wait, den entry, is that another word for estrus or? No, so den entry is, <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's just when they enter the den. <laughs> oh, oh, the, a literal den, okay. Yes, all right. right. Now, one thing that seems to be well-known among bear researchers is that bears need a minimum amount of body mass and fat prior to hibernation to reproduce. Mm-hmm. So it seems like 19 to 20% body fat, if a bear has less than that when they enter hibernation, it's not going to happen. They're not going to reproduce. Hmm. Now, several studies have shown a strong correlation between a female's body condition in the fall and reproductive success. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's generally accepted that the number 
The size and the survival of bear cubs emerging from winter dens depends on the condition of the mother when she enters the den. Now with delayed implantation in mind, which factors determine the date of implantation and birth? Because remember, they're mating mm-hmm. back in the early summer, but when they enter the den, they have not implanted the egg yet. Right. Okay. So how quick of a pregnancy is it? So it takes about 60 days. So they usually implant mm. around December 1st. Yeah. And then sometime mid to late January, right. usually the baby's born. Okay. The babies uh, can be multiple. Mm-hmm. So in the study, they found that older females, they started hibernation earlier. And the start of hibernation was earlier. Listen to this. Mm-hmm. When environmental conditions had been positive. That's the opposite of what I thought. So if conditions are good, mm-hmm. they usually will not stay up longer. Basically, they know they have a threshold. And when they hit that threshold, yeah. they're like, all right, I'm going in. Wow. So they're like, wow, everything's so good right now. I could probably eat so much more. Yeah. Ah, good night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to use the bad analogy. I'm again. good. Yeah. There's some ideas about why they do that. Hmm. One study suggested that pregnant American black bears, so this study about brown bears referenced this one about black bears. Yeah. They enter the den after they'd stored enough fat reserves for survival and reproduction. They don't have to be active when food is less abundant. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to take that that risk. So what about birth dates? Those were later when environmental conditions had been positive. So Hmm. the moms are like holding off. To put it another way, the date of hibernation prior to giving birth was longer when environmental conditions had been positive. So they enter the den, they start hibernation, and if things are good, it's like there's a longer time before they give birth. Wow, okay. Okay. So what are factors that are influencing this? Sure. Because the date of denning doesn't really correlate with the date of birth, they suggest that other factors than the start of denning trigger implantation. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the mother's body condition. Now, the- I, I could see that. I, I, part of me could see that if it's a physiological change in the bear that triggers the drive towards hibernation, maybe as soon as they hit a threshold of a certain fat count, you know, a fat percentage or something, yeah. then they're like, whoa, <laughs> I got to hibernate now, you know? Like it's if, it, if it's something like that, I, I could see it, you know, if it's just like a trigger. Now, this is where this study, I questioned whether including it. Yeah. Because they say, is it maternal body condition that's triggering implantation? And then that's going to lead to a certain birthday. Mm-hmm. But in this study, they captured bears and they inserted sensors for body temperature and sensors that were going to say whether the bear was moving or not. Yeah. Because that's how they kind of figured that the bear was giving birth. Okay. But they didn't gather information about body mass or fat content in autumn. They captured the bears in spring, put in these sensors, and then that's it. So they basically said, we didn't capture the bears in autumn or winter. We had no info about maternal body mass or fat content, so we can't say. Ah, uh, that's so. I was I was actually about to ask you about that, but then I kind of then my mind started swirling all over the place, and I was like, well, if they're just getting to the body can the body fat amount, or like, how do I know how much more? Like, are they beyond yeah. that fat amount, or did they just hit the fat amount and then hibernate, or do they go well beyond it? No, uh, I, I, it's tough, yeah. folks. I, I, some of you may be thinking, whoa, this is this is confusing, and I kind of went back and forth last night when I was going through my notes, what mm-hmm. to put in and take out. But I really wanted to get across that this is super complex. There's a lot of factors at play. There's a right. lot we don't know. Previous studies on captive brown bears have shown that larger females give birth earlier during the winter. Okay. Okay. 
But in this study, now listen to this. Mm -hmm. See if you can stay with me on this. Yeah. They said that their study found the opposite, okay? That larger bears gave birth later. So they were wondering, well, does it have something to do with the fact that in previous studies they were captive brown bears? So maybe free-ranging females might budget their energy resources differently? Yeah. But listen to this. They based this idea that larger bears gave birth later on the fact that there were favorable environmental conditions, so those bears must have been larger. Because remember, they didn't weigh the bears in this study. Oh, right. And I'm like, okay, that does make sense, but that's kind of a jump. You don't have the data to back that up. Right, right. Right? And when was this study? This was in 2014. Okay. And I was going to say, you know, if the researchers are actually out there listening to this and I'm misreading it, you know, let us know. But this took place in Sweden, so (laughs) I don't think they're listening. (laughs) I also wanted to keep the study in because they asked a really good question. They said, is early hibernation due to disturbance? Are bears going into dens early not because environmental conditions are good, so they've reached a threshold, but because they're trying to avoid they're trying to limit disturbance. Are they trying to avoid disturbance? Hmm. So they said, with this in mind, it would be important to compare the timing of hibernation and birth with brown bear populations living in areas with low human activities during autumn. Okay. Which so I just, that, that was the disturb. That's how they define disturbance as human disturbance. Human disturbance. Okay. Yeah. And I just thought that was man. That's another factor that you might right. not even think about. Yeah. All right. So I have one more study to share. Okay. And this one is from 2012, and it's, it's titled Maternal Condition Determines Birth Date and Growth of Cubs. So this is where we get a little back into delayed implantation. The researchers here, they hypothesize that delaying implantation provides flexibility in the timing of birth so that pregnant females can keep track of environmental cues or their body condition to optimize their reproductive outcome. Okay. okay. So, and obviously, folks, as, as Steve already said, we don't believe that the bears are thinking like humans. Yeah. Right? But this is the best way we can term it, that bears are keeping track of these environmental cues. Mm-hmm. So this study tested whether females in superior condition gave birth earlier, and then they would lactate longer in the den than females in poorer condition. So in other words, cubs born to fat mothers are older at den emergence than those born to lean mothers. I feel weird saying yeah. fat mothers. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I'm taking this from the study. Yeah. We're talking about bears here. They won't be offended. I got a little triggered though. <laughs> I know. I did too reading it. I'm like, it, it doesn't sound right. It sounds wrong. <laughs> was that a like? Is that a quote? Fat mothers. <laughs> it is. Wow. Okay. And then also, females in better condition, they hypothesize, produce more milk or higher quality milk that will speed the growth of cubs compared to cubs produced by leaner females. Again, trigger warning. Cubs born to fat mothers are better nourished than those born to lean mothers. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now we should say this one was done on captive bears. Okay. And it was done on brown bears rather than black bears. Yeah. So in this study, brown bears that were fat gave birth earlier than those that were lean. And cubs nursing from fat mothers (laughs) did grow faster than those nursing from lean mothers. And the combination of an earlier birth date and faster growth by cubs increased the mass of brown bear and polar bear cubs at den emergence. Hmm. Listen to this, by about 350 grams, that's about three quarter pounds, Okay. for each increase in percent of body fat from the oh. start, of, start of hibernation. So okay. to, to give you some reference, your brown bear cubs on average weigh four to eight pounds at den emergence. Mm-hmm. Five is kind of an average. Anything less than five, their chances of survival aren't good, but 
the fact that for each percentage of fat that went up, it gave them on average a three quarter pound increase. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So they talk about how delayed implantation may have evolved because female fitness of bears increased when there was more time between mating and birthing beyond a normal gestation time. Mm -hmm. And that possibly this maximizes female choice or male competition during mating. They ended this just by saying that delayed implantation may allow species to vary the timing of implantation and birth in order to gain female fitness benefits, hmm. especially in species that give birth and begin nursing during a prolonged fast, which bears do. And just my thoughts on it is that I could easily see, I don't, I don't like to say easily see evolution of anything because <laughs> yeah. it's such a complex thing, but I could easily see the benefit to not giving birth in September, you know, because that's not a good time to prosper, <laughs> right. you know? And I so, think yeah. that it can't it can happen right at the start of hibernation. Mm -hmm. Again, there's so many things that are at play, like what's their percentage of body fat? Could there be a disturbance um, while they're in the den? Yeah. Right? Maybe they're they're kind of hedging their bets. I'm going to wait as long as I can. Yeah. There's just so many factors at play. That's why this is such an interesting topic. And right. folks, there were so many other studies, good studies that I could have included, just didn't have time. Yeah. So maybe I'll post some. We haven't posted a lot on social media. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll start posting some of that stuff because I would like to start posting more. And that leads me to say thanks, folks, to people that have reached out to us through social media, Yeah. have kept the faith and not given up on us. So we are trying as best we can to answer those things. Yeah, and I will say it was so nice to read those like hey guys uh, hope you guys aren't gone for good you know so clearly it, it, it's it's a double-edged sword we feel like we're letting you guys down but also it's so nice to know that people really look forward to the episodes yeah. every month uh, every month they used to be every month <laughs> hopefully we'll get back to more of a regular monthly skit thing but don't uh, plan on we'll it we'll do our best yeah <laughs> All right, guys, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. First and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So we want to thank, we named the dog Indy, Rob, Pollywog, John, Jessica, Jeff, Goose, Gavin, Esther, Bruce, and especially Rich, Rachel, Orange Julian, Ken, Diane, Daniel, the Hebranks, and Alyssa. Thank you so much, Thank folks. you guys so much. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon, you can check us out on patreon.com. Uh, but if you're like Steve and you can't afford to <laughs> donate to a podcast on a regular basis, you can donate to the podcast through PayPal. We have a link on our website. But you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcatcher. And I do want to thank the people that have given us five-star reviews since our last episode. Rachel Maria Sunshine. The Purple Fred, ISL1969, and JJ Helene. And I do have to say that one of these, ISL1969, it was from a nine-year-old boy named Charlie. Whoa, nice. <laughs> so thanks, Charlie. He really enjoyed it when, uh, during the sharp-shinned hawk episode, you said that you could tell the difference between a sharp-shinned hawk and a cooper's hawk because the Cooper's Hawk would be eating the sharp shin <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> he loved that. <laughs> nice. And uh, Charlie's parents, we're sorry about this episode, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I blame Bill. All right, so if you guys have any uh, hate mail you want to send our way, <laughs> you can send us an email at thefieldguys at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, or check out our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. 
And parents, we want to remind you, get those kids outside, let them get muddy, let them get dirty, let them get snowy, let them flip over rocks and logs. And even if you don't have kids, get yourself outside, folks. Yeah. And, and if you were a new patron this time and we didn't call you out specifically, we'll thank you at the next episode. <laughs> I know we normally do that this time. We just read a list, but... We'll thank you guys specifically next time. We're thinking of you. Yeah. (laughs) All right, folks. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you soon. Yep. See you next episode.